We're getting to the business end of the Strictly series, and uh, given that so many random events have happened, I thought it was about time that we had another serious analytic chat with you and Spence. Events, dear boy, events, as they would say. We, uh, we, we're always wrong. We like to make confident wrong, wrong predictions. Um, There's nothing wrong with having confidence of seeing things. And this is the thing. Planning is the 99 things that, that you will never see. Um, and the one thing that does suddenly make it into the tabloids, you will not have rehearsed. But you'll have rehearsed 99 other scenarios that are kind of like it. So you train like you want to fight you fight like you want to train i know that's the sort of militaristic view of it but yeah drill for mistakes and when a new mistake pops up you'll at least have a framework to guide yourself and that's kind of how this year strictly has felt to me everything just seems partly made up on the hoof but partly we kind of know how we want to react to this we just need to implement it and the implementation has been a bit sluggish but the thinking has been pretty much what i would expect so the storylining is sort of works in modules. You can swap a story module in or out like a big pre-made Lego section to take account of, I don't know, infidelity, somebody sulking, somebody turning out not actually to be that good a dancer. Um, and the show always survives. Yeah, I, and we're back to that reaction thing we talked about in the first it takes two cynics of this year when we talked about the idea of the radio clock hour and just, you know, things have to happen at a certain point. Blackpool's about to come up, so you've got to have stuff ready. Halloween is in there. So for one example, we've not had a 10 from Craig yet. And you tend to have had one already in a sort of little nod of, you're progressing well, we need to get your story going forwards. It's almost like they're not sure which story to push forward. So that little turbo boost you, you get from the start of the judges' call-out hasn't been delivered yet and you can see it's, it's like we were back to Ashley's dance um last last weekend Craig was trying not to give the 10 because he's like that's not where the boost needs to go but ah sluggishness he's tied himself in knots how about I play a bumper and then we'll go through some of the points from our first it takes two cynics One of the points that we made in the first episode of this was that there would be a destroyer. And we said it might be Ashley. We thought that Ashley would be the dancer who was very unpopular with the public and kept slipping into the dance-off, knocking out uh, podcast favourites. That's not come to pass. It turned out to be Charles. What so do you reckon? It's a different Lego brick, but it still fits in the same block. Uh, and I think there's a couple of things to pick up here. First, of course, Ashley is doing what they probably expected in terms of skill level and presentation. And actually, 
I'll take that back. So I think Ashley's over delivering, especially when you look at her contemporary dance. Uh, that's far in excess of what they probably would have expected. You know, Ashley mid table with the judges, and then she's connected to some part of the public. It could be because she's got a, a strong voting drive from her appearances on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Into the Jungle, or however they want to call it. There the, are just the some people trial. who vote for the best dance as well. And yeah, so you mix in those, she does have a good public vote. Charles Venn, uh, Charles appears to not have a very strong public vote, but Fierce Karen, um, and I, I, I wonder how much Fierce Karen is because Charles is very focused as well, and they're sort of found a working pattern where Karen has to stay fierce and Charles stays Charles fierce, you know, is getting the judges' marks in, but isn't getting the public vote in. And that naturally makes him into a destroyer mode, which is somebody who comes in, uh, will always be in the dance-off, or, or regularly be in the dance-off, and takes out whoever the producers, if you are fully paid up into the conspiracies and cynicism, put into the dance-off with him. Why has Charles not managed to make a connection with the public? Yeah, there is the obvious answer, but I don't think it's that one. I just think... Yeah, we talked about the Strictly Racism thing on the last episode, but I don't think that this is that. No, I, th I think it's confidence. Um, and I think if Charles Venn was in Dancing with the Stars in America he would have the public behind him because America loves that American success story, the pull you up, do better, full of enthusiasm. Think of every single sort of VC pitch that you get and the ideas of, of American startups. It's always, we can do this, we've got this, and, America, and the American public really appreciates that. The British public are sitting there with a cup of tea and a hobnob and a custard cream just going, you're a bit confident, aren't you? Um, not sure about that. And that reticence means that it, the, boy, who he's trying to connect to is an American audience, not a UK audience. And I just think it's that what Charles needs to do to get ahead in his business um, has given him a huge armory. But that armory isn't working with the public. It's working with the business, it's working with the professionals, it's working with the judges, but it's not working with the people at the end of the televote. I think he comes across as somebody who takes himself incredibly seriously. And part of the, the sort of core value of Strictly is that this is all a joke. This, this is inherently ridiculous. And we see that with those who are connecting with the public. And... Let's, let's take Ashley, who we thought was going to be the destroyer. Ashley has very slowly brought out her kooky side of things. And, yeah, I think there's part of the audience that, that appeals to, again, with her tribes as well. And, yes, she's partaking. She's she's doing the enjoyment. She's happy to dress up as, as, a, as a troll. And... Um, that that's was it a troll was it something else with it whether mythical that was the right beast. thing to do or not she's happy to do it yeah yeah and, and there's that certain element of of tis was which is look we're going to do this and you either go yep fine bring it on um and we've seen that in people like ed balls we've seen it with graham this year uh, we've seen it with judge ringer in previous years just like yep bring it on you know, those are the people who get past Blackpool, but don't necessarily make it all the way to the final. People who completely immerse themselves in Strictly, 
sure they have some skill, sure they are building, sure that they are engaging, but also have don't brag about it. So we've come round to it naturally. The other uh, point that we made last time was the improvers. And I think we put some people in the improvers category um, who that didn't turn out to be the right decision. I think that we thought Vic and Dr. Range would be key improvers. But actually, Graham and Lauren, both of whom I thought might struggle for votes and struggle to improve fast enough, have massively outperformed them. What assumptions did we get wrong? I think that we thought that Graham was one type of cricketer at Strictly, when in actual fact, he's the other type of cricketer at Strictly. Um, I'm not on my cricketing legend names, but there's some that have done really well and some that have not done as well. I think we put Graham in the latter category when actually it turns out he's in the former category. And I think one of the key things is the psychology of being a sports person, um, especially the incredibly high levels that Graham and Lauren have to perform at, where tiny, tiny fractions are the difference between ongoing success for decades and just not making the first team. When you're faced with when you're faced with something it's fight or flight sports people generally have are, are in that fight mode they will go up they will address a problem head on they're very good at self-analysis they know where their mistakes and their flaws are and they're also very very open to taking advice if they completely trust the advice that they're given uh, so we'll stay with graham we all know how fierce ot is in the training room as we've seen with vts over the years and i think that that is a combination there where Graham instinctively trusts Oti. Oti instinctively trusts Graham. Some of the lifts and catches in week three and week four between that pair might have looked a little bit ungainly, but the trust level was already there. So when you have a great big positive feedback loop, when you have a brain that's designed to take on feedback and do better the next time and never give up and never surrender, and there's the Galaxy Quest quote for the podcast... That's when you can deliver. Lauren's taken a bit more time to be comfortable with AJ. Um, and that's right from the opening opening show. The first thing we all picked up was AJ nearly dropped her. So I think that confidence has taken time. But it's now clicked and they've found a working relationship. And I think it's a bit more playful that, that this when they went out to the skate park and AJ was go, oh, I'm going to pretend to take on a, a, a competitive athlete from a world championship and naturally fails miserably. But I think at that point, that aggressiveness and competitive spirit between Laura and AJ clicked together as well. And those two suddenly realised, I can improve in sport and I can treat dancing the same as my sport. Boom, I know how to do this path of progression. It's just a different discipline, but it's the same techniques. The other thing is that as well as seeing that working relationship work out between those two couples, it, especially with Graham and Oti, they are also clearly having an absolute blast and really enjoy each other's company. Uh, the evening that we're recording this, uh, Oti and Graham were on Instagram Live doing carpool karaoke um, in a just very free and hilarious manner. Again, that comes back to the trust thing. If you're in a situation and you've been asked to do something, but you don't think you can, yet you trust the person who's asking you that that person knows your ability, then you can trust their trust in you. 
and you have your feedback loop again. And Graham and Oti have that in spades. Graham doesn't. Graham doesn't know dance when he started this. Obviously, he doesn't know how to do the catches and lifts. But when Oti says, "I know you can do this, but it's going to take you an hour and a half to master it," he's going to go right. An hour and a half it is. So with uh, Lauren and AJ's Viennese waltz, we saw from the training footage AJ having to just work around how to do the holds and we saw just a tiny snapshot of how that vt worked and i think that was that's it that was when the trust bond was solidified between those two it's like i trust you to get this i trust you that you trust me to work out how to do the holds feedback loops again builds up and when you have those positive feedback loops and energy and the mentality of not knowing when your contest is going to end, but you keep going to driving forward. Wonderful things can happen in partnerships. Let's go on to our last big point from the first It Takes Two Cynics. We said that Joe was going to run away with this one, just basically on the strength of his giant televote, which we still don't really know how big it is, by the way. How are they constructing the storyline around his improvement? And is that improvement fast enough for, to get all the Lego bricks together for the final? Uh, yes, it's fast enough. The thing is, he is improving. That, that's the first thing, and I think everybody can agree with that. From where he started to where we are now, just before Blackpool, there has been an improvement in his ability to dance. It may not be as, as big as an improvement with other celebrities, but he is improving. That curve is going up the way. So if you know that that curve is going up the way, and after about the third or fourth week, they would see that, yeah, you are improving. It's a lot slower than other professionals, but we can say each week in the judging, you're improving, you're getting better, your nan would be proud, I'm really looking forward to seeing you in Blackpool. All of these are positive reinforcements that, saying to the audience, that Joe is improving. The fact that he's not improving as fast as others would would expect be expected to do doesn't really matter, because the professionals, the, the hardcore fans of Strictly, are a far smaller percentage than the general viewing public. And they see Joe dancing every week. They're told, you're improving every week. He's never in the dance-off. So when he gets, let's assume that he does get through to the final and the televote is as strong as the YouTube views suggest, then he has a storyline of, you, you're, you're an improver. You started not knowing dance. You learned dance. You got better. There you go. If I was really smart when they're doing a nominate a previous dance to do again choose a dance from week one or two that joe did and say do that again in the final and then you've got your final step which is look how better that is compared to when you started you have been on such a journey yeah just uh bringing that week one jive back again to take on me that would probably work in the final with all of the extra technique and poise that he's picked up over the period Yep, and, you know, he's excelling in ballroom as well, so then your show dance is more ballroom-based and you have your drive being a bit of your Latin and you can show the improvement. And there you have that, look, he came, he improved, he is a worthy winner and 95% of your viewing, viewing audience are happy with that. And thinking about this weekend, Joe is perfectly set up with an impressive quick step to get his first 10 at Blackpool. Not only his first, I don't think they'll go for the 40 yet because oh, no. even with the score reset afterwards, you've got to keep that on a 
steady, steady growth line rather than a curve. It's just going to build, build, build a little bit every week. One ten, then two tens, then the thirty nine, then maybe a thirty nine or a forty in the semi final. So just, just bring that up to the boil. Don't, don't, don't let it overboil. Mm-hmm. You just, you've only got one shot to just prompting. Now. This, of course, requires a lot of buy-in from the judges. And this now comes down to between entertainment and sport. If it was if it was pure entertainment, the judges would be completely scripted. The script team would have everything worked out and all would be planned out in advance. That's clearly not the case. If it was purely competitive, you'd just see the paddles. Uh, you, the, any feedback we've done would be given privately there would be no bait to the audience there would be no Bruno jumping off the seats it would be like the old episodes of Come Dancing where they just go we award the North East two points and we award the Midlands one point it's clearly not that either so there's a point in between and it's up to the individual to decide how much entertainment and how much can competitiveness is being involved with each judge my personal feeling is there has to be some guidance but there has to be a lot of leeway as well because the judges are professional entertainers dancers competitives theaters they have their own reputation to take care of but at the same time they also know that it's an entertainment show it's going out to millions of people across the uk so you have to decide yourself watching the show where you think the balance point is We've also had to deal with a couple of random, unforeseeable events uh, this series, such as the incredible awkwardness of the, I don't know, do we call it a tabloid expose of Sean and Katya? It's, It's difficult to know what to call it because, again, you could regard this as two grown adults who can make their own choices about what they want to do with their lives there are other people involved with those relationships one of whom we know is on screen the other one who's made a very strong and a very very accurate statement online which seems to have just been ignored and pushed away and pushed under the carpet and let's just go with a fluffy oh it's just the curse let's stop think about the ramifications afterwards which i think is a mistake by the production team i think that should have that was a point where strong leadership was needed so yes it's unforeseen but at the same time it's it's okay it was unforeseen that it was going to be this exact situation but you as a production team would know the tabloids are going to try and get something they're going to be door stopping there's going to be long lenses and if not the tabloids it's going to be somebody in the pub with a smartphone that can take a a high grade picture that's suitable for printing in the newspaper so there has to be a folder marked in the event of awkward thing appearing on a front page of a newspaper and this is why i had the word sluggish early because i thought the reaction to that story was was sluggish it was slow it took a long time for any feedback to come through and when it did it seemed to be a sort of oh we're just going to stay hands off we're going to leave it to the public to make their own mind up and that did seem weak i mean yeah i guess the timing of the actual tabloid splash didn't help on 
Saturday night, just as one show's weekly cycle was ending and everybody was going into their day off, like it's likely that there would have been nobody in the office to open the big red folder of emergencies. But I was very surprised that we didn't see more defensive BBC PR swinging into action from like the Sunday afternoon onwards. I think the decision was made to be hands off. And once that decision is made, you have to stick with it. Uh, I, I think that was the wrong decision. I think that it should have, once it happened, there should have been a statement. I am sure that there would have been a clause in the contract signed by the celebrities of bringing the show into disrepute. This is a, this is a show for all ages. Um, it's designed as a family show. And while there are personal lives and there are consenting adults, part of their persona is in the public eye and it reflects on the show and on the BBC. And maybe there were other circumstances. I don't want to go too far into what arrangements people make, but it just felt like the ball was dropped. The, the BBC were reactive and not proactive and I think they could, the BBC could have made it a lot easier on themselves, making stronger, more confident choices in that situation. But yeah, there would be a big red folder. Um, and I'm sure that they decided that if that happens, we're just going to be hands off. But it looked bad. And I think if this had been four or five years ago, when the X Factor was still a very strong draw on ITV, there would have been a huge hit on the, t on the, on the figures and the X Factor would have been proactive themselves to do something. But in these years, where Strictly is twice, three times the viewing figures of X Factor, it is not worth ripping up people's lives for an extra million viewers for one week. Yeah. They could have done better, but what's done is done now. And uh, it doesn't seem like Sean is off the WhatsApp group for the contestants... Uh, because uh, four of them were all t back together again today. Dr. Range, Katie, Vic and Sean. They've all been through a very unique event. I mean, how many was, were, what, 16 seasons of Strictly? So at best, there's like about uh, 250 celebrities have been through this. It's quite a small club. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, every year has its own little club as well of, you know, unique pressures. So... You know, they've been through fire and ice as a group of celebrities. So, stuff like that's gonna, yeah. yeah, stuff like that is going to bond you. Yeah, it's um, the sort of thing where we're trying to go, yeah, you and I go, yeah, we were there in Kiev. We know what it was like. Absolutely. Um, the other foreseeable, unforeseen event was uh, that Danny turned out to be the celebrity that the sun turned against um, in the last couple of weeks. And we've already talked about the general racist tenor of some of the tabloid celebrity journalism. But it's probably interesting to think about how Danny's story differs from Debbie's. In terms of being a ringer? Yeah, in, some of your previous in, dance experience? In terms of being uh, the older ringers who... Debbie was in a position where she was immediately receiving sympathy from the audience and that 
allowed her to smooth over the transition between her stiff, jerky ballet movements to the uh, style required for Latin and ballroom. Whereas Danny didn't have that sort of groundswell of the benefit of the doubt from the public, and things went south a lot faster. This could be me really overthinking things with Debbie and Giovanni, but bear with me for a second. Yes, we know that Debbie had her dance career back in the late 70s, early 80s, and that's continued on with her school. But she's known as Debbie McGee and from the Paul Daniels Magic Show and from her late husband. And every week she had to implicitly trust her entertainment partner and then soon-to-be life partner in situations that would be embarrassing, potentially dangerous and in some rather famous situations, potentially life-threatening with the magic tricks, the stunts, the props, the movements. There had to be complete trust. You know, there were, you know, timings to the half second in terms of TV angles, mirrors, swings, levers. Uh, If you you look up a trick called metamorphosis, um, which is now done famously by uh, the Pendragons in Las Vegas, but it's been done since Houdini invented it, hundreds of years ago and the choreography there is split second timing and implicit trust between the two of them Debbie's nature not only as a dancer but as an entertainer as a performer is to think about the audience to think about what the audience can see and to implicitly trust the partner and when the partner comes up and goes I've got a great idea we're going to do this then this then you go there and you duck there and you put your arm there and I'll grab you and I'll spin and they won't see this bit now was I describing a dance movement there or the Iron Maiden escape that Paul Daniels did at Halloween it doesn't matter Debbie's mindset was this is what I do Danny I think didn't have that ability to build up his trust with Amy as quickly as Debbie did with Giovanni and as we said there Gray Minotti got that trust really quickly I think Lauren Neji have that trust now Daddy and Amy I don't think had as strong a level of trust as some of the other partnerships that we've seen over the years and when he sort of lost the mental game and he was into the dance his steps went through he didn't have the sportsman psychology to to get up and get through his his instinct is keep on doing the dance routine and it he got himself into a, a negative spiral of the mind game so as i think other partnerships and debbie and giovanni their spiral was always upwards. It was always, nope, we've got to get this right for the audience. We don't have time to, to, to make ourselves sad. We've got to do this right. So the ideal strictly competitor is somebody who's got the psychological strength of a successful sports person, the skill at connecting down the camera of a TV presenter, and the trust of a magician's assistant. Pretty much, yeah. Or a magician's assistant is one, but anything else, for example, a popular music duet, a couple might be the case. Or somebody who's in rowing, for example, where you have two people working in very close proximity. Half of a comic double act. yeah. Yeah, because you need to have the timing, the trust. And that's perhaps why Sean managed to click so well with Catcher for the Matrix routine. Let's put aside what happened after that. That matrix routine is 
strictly gold. It is timing, it is perfection, it is entertainment, it is choreography, it is competitiveness, it is complete trust. And if you think about the timing that you need in a comedy double act, it's a similar skill that you have there. You've got to get it right, you've got to trust you get all that move and everything on. But then after that, the, the the mental game of Sean was, why am I still here? I don't want to be here anymore. And he switched off. You could see Catcher just switching off and just going, why do I still have to do this? Why haven't you put us out yet, public? Why are you keeping us in? And anybody who's watched, you know, I'm a Celebrity will know the public love keeping in people that are having a terrible time. Um, they can be quite cruel, the public. But of course, strictly, it's the judges that get the final call. I think that wraps up everything we covered in the first It Takes Two Cynics and uh, at least uh, pushes our predictions and explanations to being closer to right. Yeah, we've got 99 things wrong, but what we said was 100% right. Absolutely. Cue jingle. So um, we've had a couple of questions from Twitter. And let's start with Erin's question. Is this a good or bad series of Strictly? Ooh, that's so subjective. We're only halfway through, obviously, so it could all go disastrously wonderful or disastrously bad uh, when we run up to the final show. It's, it's not a standout year. Um, it's not going to go down as a legendary year of Strictly. It's just felt a little bit too bits and pieces uh, yeah yeah it's live so it's you've got a very well drilled team but it's just missing that final ingredient to lift it to greatness is it a good year yes um we've seen some lovely stories uh we've had some really memorable moments uh, we've had lots of points about discussion but at the same time there are things that have just felt a little bit too overblown a little bit too big uh, a little bit too self-referential um so you know you know anton anton shouldn't have been here i think anton kind of set the tone for this year um with his first couple of weeks which is it's about me you know it's it's not about strictly it's about the whole thing and i think strictly itself as a machine has got a little bit too big you know, when we can spot tropes and go, so when are we getting the the, the um, medium-sized bench showing up? Well, we've seen it three times now. Um, when are we seeing the medium-sized um, pub front, which you turn around and becomes a, a bit from Greece that you can use multiple time and time again? Who's coming in on wires? Yeah, it's just a little bit too nudge-nudge-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink-wink
Do you remember how record breakers always used to have a Christmas special um, on TV? And it was nothing about people breaking records. It was just it's an hour of Roy Castle doing song and dance and tap and bringing in some guests and singers and people and everything. And they'd have some questions to the Norris McWhorter just to make sure. That's what Kevin needs. That's what Sunday night needs. And that's one of the things that I that I think we should bring in here is how Strictly's already changed Saturday night television for the BBC. It's changing Sunday night television now as well, but not on its own. It's bringing in partnerships. You have this delightful run now of Country File, of Doctor Who, of Strictly, David Attenborough, and an adult drama. That there, if you were to turn that into a running order bill and go back to look at things like Sunday night at the London Palladium when it was hosted, by Bruce Forsyth. You have your nice little talking learning piece, you have your song and dance numbers, you have your little more serious but quite lighthead family entertainment, you have a bit of uh, animals and performance and skill going on and then something for the parents. That there is a variety running bill and BBC recreated that on Sunday night and you know, the sum of the parts of Sunday night in the BBC are lifting everything up. It is an incredible run of television on a Sunday night now. So yeah. I think we've uh, managed to dodge answering Erin's question there in that it's neither a good nor bad series of Strictly yet. We'll be able to tell you whether the ending feels satisfying or not. Like, I feel a fair victory might just feel a bit... Oh, Whereas Joe winning would be an incredible improvement story. Stacy winning would be, you know, the thing that may take Kevin off to do Sunday night at the London Palladium. And Ashley winning would be the best dancer winning, which hasn't happened in years. Or, or we could have Graham winning. <laughs> like, weirder things have happened. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's there. It's it's there for the doing. I think uh, you guys picked it up in last Sunday's podcast is Graham appears to have picked up a lot of the blocks that I think were being left for Sean Walsh. Which means, one, if Graham can get past the Blackpool, the point where you would ex- have expected the comedy jester character to have left, you know, and, Gra- and if Graham is still there, he's left with the serious stuff, you know, when you get down to the last five or six. And I think... That will be very interesting to see what happens. Is it Graham is the jester storyline and it will stop maybe the weekend after Blackpool? Or will Graham and Oti just go, aha, no, contest, competitiveness. We know we're at the back of the field. They are both very competitive people. And I think we're starting to see strategic dance choice now. Um, They are left with, as you say, some absolute crackers. They're doing you know, probably quite a straight uh, theatre jazz routine to the trolley song in Blackpool, which is going to look absolutely incredible with all the extra dancers. Do you remember the bus that Gemma had in Blackpool? Yes. Uh, yeah. Imagine that prop with a tram hook thing at the top painted a different colour. I'm expecting that to come out the warehouse. If it doesn't, I will be incredibly surprised. We need that medium-sized bus tram. But yeah, Graham is left with the heavy hitters now. Paso Doble, which is a great dance for a guy wanting to make a serious impact. Argentine Tango, which I want to see. I want to see that. And he's left also in ballroom with his Foxtrot, Quickstep and Viennese Waltz. The three big hitters. 
Yeah, and he's got the samba out the way, he's got the rumba out the way. He's not got the rumba out the way, but because of the addition of Couples' Choice, it's now possible to get to the final and miss two dancers. Oti's Couples' Choice dance. Just much as it's a big point of discussion, those three words fill me with joy. Well, of course, like all the Couples' Choice dance, they work with an external choreographer, but... It is going to have a bit of OT magic in it as Remember well. that frame that she had with Danny in the blue on one side and the red on the other in the final? Absolutely smashing. Yeah. 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 We have done the favourite couple, so I think, to be fair to Ren, we should actually answer that one. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, favourite couple. Who's yours? I think it's Ashley and Pasha. And, and I think it was the, the week of the troll. Um, because... At that point, Ashley went, oh, I'm the kooky one. And at that point, Ashley went, right, I've, I've got a handle on you now. I I, I can relate to you. The, the, and it was this sort of giggly laugh up in the auditorium. It's just like, yep, I'm on your wavelength now. I think it's Ashley and Pasha. Oh, I mean, we have talked a lot about OT and Graham, but I think I'm going to say my favourite couple are Diane and Joe. And I think that's just because I watch so much content by Joe and Diane. And basically, person who makes online videos is engaging in online videos. It's amazing. Yeah. He's... Like, people were saying, oh, there's a YouTuber uh, with a bit of disdain. But, you know, the guy's a one-man broadcast empire. Yeah. Of course he's good. And the generation who watch him generally are watching strictly on their phone anyway through the iPlayer or on the app and everything or on that little live feed that goes on after the show finishes oh that's great it just pops up and goes where's John where's John where's John where's John where's John you've just missed him oh you're only 20 minutes I'm going to stay here where's John where's John where's John there's a thousand people in that live stream chat and 998 of them are only there to see Joe yeah and that's why he didn't hit the dance off this weekend yeah, despite that being a ropey old samba. Imagine, Still we could... Enough we, to, to, to. we could have had a two-samba dance-off. The samba is a deadly, deadly dance. You don't want to be doing it after week four. And now, of course, you don't have... I mean, was, is it just me or is it... Did it used to be that they would choose two dances for each week? So you'd either do one Latin or one ballroom and you'd be able to compare sambas over various celebrities at the same, in the same week. That was thought to uh, give a lack of variety, like especially on Viennese Waltz week, you just saw a lot of spinning. And, you know, it strictly is a variety show, as we always say, and mixing up the dancers gives you a, a much better variety show bill and removes the ability to do direct comparisons unless you want them. Heads Entertainment versus Contest, which is a very interesting balance point, which we can leave as an exercise to the listener. Marvellous. Okay, we've got another question. Katie, as I think I see five question marks in this. <laughs> okay. Right, right, shall we put the timer on and just try to, I'll try and, I can rapid fire them if you like, Let's and then give them back these. to you. Right, yeah. in a year with a few ringers, should the judges take into account previous dance experience? I think they do. Yep, I think they do. Uh, as always, we'd like to see the rule book to see what you're judged on, what the judges are looking for, where the marks go on, where the marks come off. Uh, you know, we, I, I've got to go back to 
our Eurovision podcast where we have jukebox show where we rate the songs hit, miss or maybe. I've deliberately never said what hit, miss and maybe criteria are um, and left it to the person judging the songs to make the agreement. And the, most people generally work it out themselves. I think it's the same with the not to 10. You, uh, or is it one to 10? I don't think we've ever seen a zero paddle, have we? I think theoretically, if you just don't dance. Yeah. And I think the judges have got their own criteria and it does kind of work out and I do think that they, they take that into consideration because otherwise the difference between Ashley and Graham's dance uh, the weekend just passed would have been much bigger or Danny's mistakes would have dropped in right down to the bottom of the table even further than what, 23? 27. Um, 27. I think yeah. you can also tell that they do take it into account because the people with previous dance experience get a lot more technical feedback than the people who are uh, starting from scratch. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That one's that done. Is the couple's choice a good innovation? For entertainment, yes. For contest, no. Because nobody home has any idea what to be looking for, how to judge, or what's going on. And when the judges are going, well, we're not sure what we're looking for, but we know it and we see it and we see it and that's good. How does that help guide the viewer? It. Yeah. it it seems to me somebody's went, everybody likes the show, when we do the reader surveys, everybody likes the show dances in the final. So we need to have show dances throughout the year, but we can't call them show dances. So what can we do? It has given us some of the strongest moments of the series so far in Faye's uh, couple's choice and Ashley's couple's choice. But I, I just still don't understand what it's got to do with Latin and ballroom dancing. I, I, yeah, I, I think it comes down to people, people like the show dance... We need to have more show dances. We can't leave them to the last week. Uh, should there be more emphasis on the 10 standard Latin and ballroom dancers? Well, I mean, I think, Ent- I, think, <clears throat> I think that this would probably mean that we could get rid of the Charleston, but we would have to lose the Argentine tango. I'm not a purist. The closest I get to understanding ballroom dancing is my daughter, who's going through a medals test. Um... And she would probably agree very strongly with the opinion on the emphasis on the ten core dances, um, entertainment contest. I'll come back to the, to that again. I think it by. Do you know what I think? Keep the dances what you've got now, but to quote Lang Goodman, less faffing around, less props, more dancing. Absolutely, and you would have to pry the Argentine tango from me with a big crowbar. Yeah, and there ain't no way that you could have Craig Revel Horwood and not have Charleston. Exactly. Um, get rid of one of the judges, potentially Bruno or Darcy, and replace with a ballroom expert. Uh, technical question about... Oh, you know, Kate, Katie, I'm, I'm going to speak to Katie directly here. The, the questions you've got there are all to me feel very much like you want to be something that's closer to ballroom competitive dancing you want a more more contest side a more sporting side of things and less of the entertainment and the faff that's perfectly understandable there are there are certain shows and areas where i think there should be more emphasis in on a sporting element and a competitive element than an entertainment element but strictly has to be as many things to as many people as possible you've got Shirley in there um, who is um, an expert so I'm led to believe um, and you do have you know, understanding of what people are looking for in the other three judges and 
as a combination of four, they are also entertaining in their own right as well. Because you'd need to find uh, an expert who can do the scoring, who can do the judging and the comments, and who can also work in a live television environment. That's probably a very, very small subset. So you would need to prioritise. We need one judge with lots of experience, one judge who's very televisual, one judge who's the baddie, uh, and one judge who is the catch-all for everything else. It's likely that your suggestion, Katie, Gary Edwards, it's likely that he even screen-tested. Yeah, or, um, or Gary said, that's that's not for me. I'm yeah. just do dancing. And, it, you know, a lot goes on behind the scenes in televisual hiring. And, you know, it's not just your expertise that gets you hired on TV. It's chemistry. It's what, what role you fit into. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, yeah, with the chemistry you have with the other judges, you would be the junior judge. You would have the smallest dressing room, more than likely, because that's how the ranking works. Shirley wouldn't share her chicken with you. You'd have to bring your own chicken in. Shirley doesn't share her chicken with anybody. Okay, and so, if you share your chicken, Shirley's not going to like you. <laughs> so Elliot has a last thing that um, he wants us to bring up, which was Vic right to talk about her elimination? I don't think she was wrong, but I think she forgot she was on the radio when she was saying it. I think if Vic had been a BBC radio presenter, she would have been more careful of her words. Because she's commercial radio, she could be a little bit looser and freer and talk a little bit more about the process. A lot of what Vic's criticisms were was not understanding how that bit of television works with the producer when the producer got, sits there and my understanding is the producer went this is how much time we have left to give your comments so you have 15 seconds you have 20 you have 35 and you have however much is left out of 35 depending on how much Bruno overruns and but from a distance that's just a great big talking with the producers before they yeah, give me my score that's the producer pointing at Craig point, saying you pointing at Darcy saying you Pointing yeah. at Shirley saying you and pointing at Bruno yeah. saying you, which when you're stood a few metres away, who knows what that looks yeah. like. I, and it could have been the timings. It could have been, right, what do you judges want to say is judging points? Right, you say that point, you say that point, you say that point, you say that point. That's the sort of stuff that gets cut out of this podcast. It's cut out of the Sunday Night Show as well. Mm-hmm. But Vicky saw it. Yep. Um, Gosh, I hope that Vic gets to come back for a Christmas special at some point. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to see if Graziano comes back. Uh, yeah. yeah. Curious definition of the word interesting, but yeah. Yeah, very curious. Right, I think we've probably just about wrapped things up now. Have you got anything else that you want people to look out for from Blackpool onwards? Have you ever read a book by Stephen King called The Long Walk? No, Ewan, I haven't. You'll have to see it for me. So The Long Walk is 100 people are selected um, from a... It's a future dystopian American society. Uh, and every year, 100 people are chosen at random and they're told to walk. And if they drop below four miles an hour, they get three shots. And at the end of the third shot, they'll be shot dead. And the one person left standing 
gets whatever they want and everybody else is dead. It's actually a metaphor about life. Um, it's a long walk. It's a fun one. It's actually one of the Richard Bachman novels. It's uh, a bit of a drastic format change for Strictly. Not really, because you've got to give me a little bit of flight fantasy and I'm now going to bring it back again because at the end of this we're going to be left with one dancer standing okay admittedly none of the others are shot but this is when some of the injuries come in so there'll be some bruised ribs and stuff the point of the long walk is you didn't know when the end was you didn't know how long you were going to be there you had to keep on delivering and you could never slip up it's as much as like psychological contest as it were ultra marathons have the same sort of idea you don't know how long you're going to be running in some of them it's till the last man is standing and this is what you have after blackpool it's not just about the dancing anymore it's about being able to go into the training room when everything in your body aches and you just want to have a cheeseburger and you just go nope 10 hours of rehearsal the people who are going to do well after Blackpool are the people who have an inner strength and can lift themselves up into that and can attack that with ferocity and precision. And the people who are left standing, you know, I'm looking down that list and you have to say that they've all got some facets of the energy that's needed the the focus and the dedication. Ashley, of course, has been through a, a you know, the cutthroat musical career, the Pussy Cat Dolls, and being through other reality TV shows. So she has the grit there. Charles Venn, as we know, Charles is incredibly focused and knows what he wants and is determined to get that. Faye Tozer, again, you think about a, a tour with steps, dancing every single night, having to pull yourself up, knowing people have paid the money for the tickets. She knows how to go on and keep performing as well. Graham will have dug deep in his sporting. He's one of the best cricketers that England has. And so I'm told. That's correct, yes? Oh, yes. Yep, right. Okay. Uh, so he's he's got that ability just to find, oh, I didn't know I had this last bit in me. He knows how to find that. Joe... Joe's been, yeah, yeah, Joe just sits in front of a camera and turns out a YouTube video every day. That's hard. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to keep that quality and it's to keep that through. And there is no reward. There is no reinforce, reinforcement cycle. It, there's no feedback loop. It's the one that he made himself. Kate Silverton, looking at it, is probably the weakest of the bunch here. Um, that's not to say that she's weak. It's just that she, there's nothing in the background psyche that has that extra bit of drive. Lawrence Steadman, again, similar to Graham, has been able to fight that that dig. And Stacey Julie, with some of the work that she's done, it's a different type of grit that she's found that to, to get on and to go into places. She's and unfazable. Yeah, and she'll have, she'll have, she's, she's a BBC reporter who will have worked in the Middle East, which means she'll have went through the hostage training, the, the, the capture, the kidnapping, and, and all of that sort of training stuff that they don't talk about, that all of their foreign reporters have to go through, and the mental stresses and how to deal with that. They've all got armour. They've all got extra reserves. It's who can tap into them and smile and look down the lens for another five weeks. That's how we'll find our winner. Well, I look forward to enjoying the rest of this ultramarathon endurance event with you. Thanks, well, for, well, <laughs> thanks for joining us, Ewan. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Enjoy Minsk. Keep dancing. Keep <laughs> dancing.